Mystery author Catherine Hall Page celebrates a special anniversary with the 25th book in her Agatha Award-winning Faith Fairchild series, Body in the Wake, out now. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in today's binge reading episode, Catherine talks about how a decision to sit down and write a mystery novel while on holiday in France years ago led to a remarkable second career, how the pandemic is affecting her stories, and about the cookbook that won an Agatha Award for Best Novel Nominated for Non-Fiction. But before we get to Catherine, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Catherine's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Catherine. Hello there, Catherine, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Jenny. I'm absolutely delighted. Oh, I only wish it, it's been a dream to go to New Zealand. And so this is this is almost as good. <laughs> the next best thing. That's lovely. And I think you're in Massachusetts, are you? I am. I am outside of Boston in Massachusetts. But normally we live four months of the year in Maine, these especially my husband retired about six years ago, I guess. And so, but because of the pandemic, we we never left Massachusetts. We are in a very lovely spot, very wooded and beautiful. And we did miss going to Maine by the water, but this has been not not a bad place to hunker down. No, that's great. Well, the latest book that you've written in your Agatha Award-winning series is set in Maine, and a number of them have been set in Maine over the years. And it's a really special book because it's a silver anniversary book. It's the 25th one in the series. Now, that in itself is pretty amazing, isn't it? It is, really. And when I, I think about it, it just at times it seems as if it's gone quite fast and then when I look back and and think of those very first because I I did have I didn't publish the the first book wasn't published until I was 40 I didn't write the first book until I was 38 and my husband took a sabbatical we were living in France and I had a two-year-old who was in a lovely daycare there, but I had this whole other career. So I, I consider myself really quite uh, lucky to have had two two careers that have meant so much to me. But this 25th, this, this has just been one lovely thing after another. People have just been wonderful. You've won a lot of awards for them over the years, and we will go into that a little later, but Faith Fairchild is the name of your amateur sleuth. She's a minister, minister's wife and a caterer. When you were starting out, as you mentioned, you were on holiday in France. Did you ever expect it would take off like this and, and be such a lasting thing? Oh, absolutely not, and not 
you know, with no sort of false modesty. I just assumed I was writing this one book and I certainly didn't think I was writing a series and it wasn't until the editor, legendary Ruth Cabin, an extraordinary editor at St. Martin's who, uh, when she died at 98, she was still working away. And I was so lucky to have her as my first editor. My first, the first word I got was through my agent. She said, well, Ruth wants to know when she can expect the next in your series. And that is honestly the first time that I really thought, you know, it was more going to be more than one book. I thought, well, okay, two books. But then it turned out to be 25 and a bunch of other adventures. Yes, yes. Well, this one is called The Body in the Wake. And one of the things that's striking looking over them is that obviously writing over that period, the character develops and changes her life. There's big changes that go on in her life. The little Their son, Ben, who was just a baby in the early series, is now, in this book, away at college. And I just wonder if that reflects also what's been going on in your own life. Is there a certain parallelism between what happens to Faith and what happens to you? Well, I, I think it's probably true of, um, for most women and, and, and men too, in the beginning books, you know, she's really quite young. I started writing in real time. And then after a while, after the books began to number four, five, six, I realized if I kept writing in real time, she would be much too old. So the children are aging more or less in real time, but she isn't. And again, as Ruth Cavan said to me, when I thought it might seem hard to believe, also hard to believe she was finding all these bodies. Ruth said, uh, Catherine, it's fiction. You can do whatever you want. And that would seem obvious, but it was very freeing. And so I realized that I could kind of slow down her aging. And in the beginning, I one of my closest friends said, well, I really love the book, but I like her her, I'd like as a friend, her next door neighbor picks Miller much more because she's, Faith Fairchild is kind of spoiled. She's moved from Manhattan after a kind of glitzy career as a caterer there. And she's in this small New England town and complains she can't, you know, where is her Bloomingdale's and where, you know, she can't get a good haircut and different foods and so forth. She doesn't like New England boiled dinners. And she said, you know, she seems a bit spoiled and she's all concerned with different clothing brands. And in the beginning, you know, she is like that. But as time goes by, she certainly, she certainly has changed. I mean, I think having children, marriage, work experiences for everybody changes us in, in many ways. And we, as we get older, Hopefully, we're, you know, a little of that sharpness gets gets honed off, and she's she's mellowed. She's much less judgmental. She really is not me. I always say she's much taller. That's the only, you know, the we don't resemble each other at all. But 
inevitably she has my sense of humor. She has what I would call a moral compass, although I, I heartily dislike what I call soapbox mysteries where an author has a point of view about a, either a political issue or something and it kind of rams it down your throat, which is not to say that there isn't a very strong message. I think we can all agree that murder is the most heinous crime you can commit against another human being. And, and there have been issues over the course of the books that made sense to address. But it, she, I think at this point in her life, because her, she's going to become an empty nester very soon with Ben away and, and Amy in her last year of high school, you know, her, her life is going to change. And, you know, who knows, maybe she'll change careers. It's, and that's what happens to all of us, I think. Yeah, I'm interested that you mentioned about the kind of soapbox message because there isn't a soapbox me message in this book at all, but you do tackle very subtly the issue of the widespread use of opioids and you yes. sort of reflect that concern that they penetrated right into the very most lowest community levels of small-town life in America. Have you done this quite often that you might have highlighted an issue that you think is of concern to the communities like the ones you're writing about? Yes, actually, I another one <laughs> with this book, with The Body and the Wake, it's because um, where we live in Maine is, is a rural, it's an island, there's a bridge where there's an island. And, you know, a number of years I you know became aware of, of the problem. And, and, you know, people think of it as an urban problem, you know, and that, oh, you know, this is, you know, just the main streets or, you know, these are this kind of thing. But it, the more I learned about it and became involved, particularly with some groups dealing with it, wonderful group, Island Health and Wellness right there, I learned a startling fact, and it's addressed in the book, and that is on the island, the largest number of heroin addicts were young mothers with children and their husbands were fished it's a fishing community so that they had money although heroin is cheaper than a pack of cigarettes and but they didn't you know they didn't have a life of their own they were either stuck at home with small children or the children were at school and they were really literally lost and being lost to us through overdoses through all sorts of things so i became very caught up in all of that and with with what was being done to address it and so i ended up doing more I wouldn't call it publicity, but panels and other things with all across the state of Maine on the whole problem of addiction. And there's so much shame involved with people feeling that, you know, you should be able to just do it yourself. You know, you, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, stiff upper lip, everything. Don't, you know, you can help yourself. So there was a lot of that going on. The other book, was a book um, that had to do with the whole problem of cyberbullying. And this was a number of books ago. Now I'm trying to think what is which one was that? Because it 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 involved Ben when he was in middle school. And instead of making him the bully, uh, uh, the target, I made him 
be involved in the bullying. This was, you know, when the very beginnings of it was like MySpace or some even before Facebook was big. And so he was joining with the bullies rather than be the target himself. And so that whole notion of, of you know, how kids get pulled into this and that that was a very definitely a message that I wanted to talk about. Let's see, which one was that now? Okay, I think that was the body in the bonfire. And I also addressed, a, a, there was a, an issue of, of racial injustice that I felt very strongly about that was happening. In I, I alternate the books between this Aylesford, Massachusetts, totally fictitious town west of Boston, with what I call the someplace else books. And you asked and you said, you know, I'd set them in other countries. So those are the someplace else books. And then the next one, they're back in Aylesford. So it, it's, there's, was the addressing the, the problem of, again, a kind of, you know, targeting of anyone who is different. Uh, and I feel very strongly about that. Sure. Now, on the lighter side of things, Faith is a caterer and you often include mm. recipes. In this particular book, we're talking about Body in the Wake. You've got summer holiday dishes because that's the, the season that the book is in. And so you've got things like chilled pea soup and blueberry mm. buckle. And I was very interested in the, the fruit shrub I hadn't heard of fruit shrub before, but apparently it's a drink that was very popular in the colonial days and has now yeah. come back as something that's quite sort of hot at the moment. So that that was really fun. And you've got a recipe for that. It's a mixture of fruit, sugar and vinegar, I believe. Yes, and it, and it's extremely nice if you add a bit of vodka or gin to it too. <laughs> It, it's become a very popular, it became a very chic kind of a cocktail, still is, I, you know, although bars are not open now. But yeah, it's sort of like a lot of things, you know, you know what's happened comes around in terms of food. You know, we go through these cycles, you know, but remember when quiche was such a novelty and everybody was all excited about that. And in the 1950s in New Jersey, where I grew up, my mother's dinner party special was a kind of green bean casserole with mushroom soup and water chestnuts with little sprinkled with little dried kind of Chinese onions on top, you know, that so, and now that's become a favorite again. I, you're seeing, I'm seeing that on menus and, you know, so it's, it, it is, but I, I've always, my mother was Norwegian American. We, she was an artist, and I think it was very hard for her every night to have to get dinner for five on the table, and because she really had not grown up in a household where there was anything but fish, good fish, boiled potatoes, overdone vegetables, and that's pretty much what I grew up with. And it was very healthy, and we were very happy. Nobody complained. But my husband, when I met him, he just couldn't believe that there were all sorts of foods I had never eaten, or, and he was very interested in food. And we did the summer after we were married, which is now 45 years ago, we went to France. He had 
friends, he had had colleagues, and and it was the Julia Child moment where I we were between trains, and I had an omelet and a little salad just there in Paris, and I thought, wow, this is amazing! What amazing food! And then when we got home, you know, I thought, well, if you want to eat like this, you have to cook like this. So that started the whole cooking thing. And you've published a cookbook from the series called Have Faith in Your Kitchen. (laughs) So that's lovely. Is that also the book that won an Agatha Award for Best Novel nominated for nonfiction? Is is that the book? That was the nonfiction nomination, absolutely. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. That, yes, I was very, really very pleased. And it came out, the Orchis, O-R-C-H-I-S-E-S, it's a, a press down in Alexandria, Virginia. They did a kind of a very fancy, very beautiful slipcase edition of it. And then it's in paperback. So you can actually spill on it and use it in your, in your kitchen. But yeah, I, the recipes are the hardest part of the books to write. I started putting recipes in in the fourth book because people were writing to me and asking me for the recipes. And I was sending them out. And again, this Ruth Cavan said, well, why don't you put them in the book and, and include them in the book? And I said, well, she said, there, it, culinary crime had burst uh, onto the scene with my friend Diane Mott Davidson, who had she had recipes from the start, and Ruth said, "You know, put them in the book." And I said, "All right, but I I want to put them at the end, so they don't interrupt the narrative." And Faith has stumbled across a badly bludgeoned body, and then there's a brownie recipe. So let's put them all at the end. And some people, I have another good friend who says, "Oh, love wonderful book, too much food as usual. He's not interested at all." And I wanted them to be recipes that anyone could make, reliable, not requiring expensive or exotic ingredients. And, you know, so they're very hard because I they have to be original. I have to make them up and, you know, and then do, do them over and over again, which husband and son particularly didn't mind when it was the dessert recipes. But but I it is absolutely true that they are the hardest part of the book for me to write. Yeah, yeah. But you obviously are a keen cook. I I, I like very much like to cook and I certainly have been getting a lot in during these last this last year, which is pretty much I just realized I that the last time I was actually in Boston was March 10th. So a year, you know, it's been, yeah, Yeah. it's been quite different. But we live in a community where we're very fortunate to have several family farms, so I can get quite wonderful ingredients. And, you know, and it's, it's been a release. I think that's the way to put it. Yes. Yeah. Look, it did catch my eye that in one of them, The Body in the Ivy, you pay homage to Agatha Christie. That book is modelled on the Christie classic and then there were none. I just wondered what prompted you to perhaps embark on that as, a, as an exercise. Well, when we get to talk about binge reading, there's not nothing better for binge reading than Agatha Christie. I, you don't yeah, any I of thought that might be part of it, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it was, but... I began to think about it, and I began thinking uh, about it as 
as really as a challenge, like you know, how could I make, how could I update this and really, and make it relevant? So I, you'll, you'll see it was, it's, one person told me that she was essentially reading them both at the same time and enjoying the parallels, but that, but also great differences. And I also wanted to write a book. I went, I was in university in, in the 1960s and I wanted to write about that particular time. And it's a, it's a women's college. So there's, there's also that aspect. And I, I really enjoyed writing that book a great deal. That's wonderful. Tell us something about your creative process and has it changed as you've gone on? I mean, I guess that first book probably was, you approached it rather differently from what you did, book 25. Mm. Yeah, the, the first book was uh, French Friends loaned me one of those old Underwood type typewriters that you see in the movies. And so I, you know, just typed it out there. I, I kind of had this idea in my head and um to write this novel and and I thought well it could be a mystery I like to that I had the character and you know, I thought well I'd like to read mysteries well let's see this is my year this is my little gift of time here because I had been applying for other for jobs in education after having finished that graduate degree and so I you know so there was a bit of a time pressure in that one but I I you know, I had made notes and so forth, so I did it. In the early books, I made extensive outlines and all, you know, all sorts of things that over the years, it's changed, but not too dramatically. I start out with a synopsis of the book that goes to my editor, and I've had absolutely fantastic editors. I list them in the body, in the wake, in the beginning with great Thanks. So an editor might say, well, okay, this, I think this is going to need more suspense here or, you know, they'll make comments. And I, then I take that synopsis, which is like the skeleton of the book. And I've got my list of characters with descriptions. And I keep track in every chapter of the first and last line so that every chapter doesn't start out with and then faith got up and looked out the window or you know sort of a repetitious thing and every last line has to be one that keeps you turning to the next chapter and not going to sleep so you know so that's a way I, I keep a timeline I have these notebooks that are like have little graph paper those French notebooks to keep my handwriting something legible and I keep a timeline so that again I'm not writing something that happened during one week, and but I mentioned two chapters before the same thing, you know. So you have you have to really, I have to be very meticulous about doing that. The so that that whole process and the process of the actual writing process, starting with the second book, was works for me. I cannot tell you how many drafts. I have because every day I start by going back and I rewrite what I have written the day before. So it's a kind of a rolling draft. And at the end of every chapter, I print out 
the chapter, get my pencil, and make changes, go back, make the changes on that chapter, and then I keep going. So that's what works for me. And then once the manuscript is done, then the manuscript goes to my editor. I get editorial letter comments, and, you know, and then we go on from there. So it's that having this kind of almost like a jump start every day by going back and looking, taking a good hard look at what I've done. Some, you know, sometimes I just get rid of, you know, most of it and just keep going. So that, that's about process for me and it, and it works for me. I, and I know who, I always know who done it. I love to hear all the different ways that writers have of writing, you know, of uh, Robert B. Parker, for instance, you know, he would sit down every day, write a certain number of words, no outline, no nothing, write a certain number of words about Spencer, and then get to the end, and that was it. His book was done, and they were wonderful. Other writers, you know, they need to know who who did it or who the villain is, and others find out for themselves at the end. For, for me, the big thing is to play fair with the reader. I always talk about, you know, you can't introduce the evil twin in the last chapter when this is someone who has never appeared in the book before or is a very obscure character. I, I, I think of it, the mystery is very different from writing a, a literary novel because you're writing on two levels where you're writing about a real crime that has occurred, a murder, but you're also kind of the red herrings. You're diverting the reader from, if you, if you guess, and we have all read these books where you know right away, you know, who, who is the, the culprit. So it's, like parallel ski tracks in a way. That's another way I think about it. Yeah. So that's the challenge for yeah. me and it's lovely. Turning to talk a little bit more about your wider career, you had a very strong career in academia and higher education before you got around to writing. You've got a doctorate from Harvard, I believe, and you had years developing adolescent educational programs. Yeah. Tell us how that has fed into your books. How is that influenced your whole life? Oh, oh! I, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's anything more important, you know, that I ever, ever will do than, than those years of, and, and it's still, I still am working um, actually with a group called the Youth Advocacy Foundation in Boston, um, you know, because essentially the, the groups of kids that I was working with and the programs developed were for these were throwaway kids many of them were from uh single parent homes and i even occasionally would have kids you know who parent had no parents no adult supervision and you know and so that but they were not they were not valued as human beings and it wasn't until certain laws came into effect uh, in the state of Massachusetts, and then eventually the whole country that said, you know, that you can't, you couldn't just expel kids from school, you had to provide programming for them. So that's how it all started with devising programs to bring these kids back to school, to address their problems of, well, obviously self-esteem, but also substance abuse, and then just 
some horrific family dynamics. So it was, again, I, I felt very much, and, and I was brought up in that way that we are, I don't want to sound, I don't know what the word is, but, you know, that we're, that we're not here on this earth for ourselves, that we're here for other people. Mm-hmm. And I, I was, I believe that very strongly. And that, that's, and just looking back to the books, that thread, I mean, faith is called faith, the, the cookbook is called faith. Um, <laughs> you don't push that faith thing, but there is that thread going through the whole series. Well, the, she's married to a minister as well. And I gather in one of the early books, I was quite interested that you had an origin story for Faith and Tom that was about book yeah. 20. So it took quite a long time to get to that origin story, but she had actually made up her mind. She didn't want to have anything to do with parish life. So that, But that is there in the background of the books all the time, isn't it? Well, it, it is. And I, after seeing that question, I realized that, in fact, book number t- 10, The Body and the Big Apple, a reader, a fan gave me that title. People are suggesting titles often, and that's great. My son came up with The Body in the Wake when I was trying to figure out what would be a good title. But the, no, book number 10 it actually is starts even before... Tom and it's it's really the first it's a what they publishers call a prequel which is you know I'm not sure about how I like that word but it 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 is a prequel and and Faith is the daughter of a clergyman and her grandfather clergy and so she grew up in this kind of fishbowl existence where people who normally would not think it appropriate to comment on the way Faith's mother was bringing her up or the way Faith and her sister Hope behave, you know, feel quite free to comment. And over the years, I've gotten enormous numbers of, well, used to be letters, snail mail. Now it's over the website, you know, saying, yes, this is exactly what it's like, you know, and it is like living in a fishbowl. And, you know, you have to always think about what you're doing or how people might in the congregation or what whatever will respond. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to play on that. I guess it, the first book, I, I wanted to write the kind of mystery that I like to read. And they, I liked mysteries that had some humor in them, although there's nothing funny about murder, but I like that element. And then the food. I li- I liked, you know, the, the Rex Stout, others who had nice food. And I wanted to have a, a, you know, a strong, what I hoped would be a strong female sleuth and an amateur sleuth. I didn't want to have to get involved with all sorts of, of police procedural things. Mm. Harlan Cobden has said that Faith is one of his favourite amateur sleuths, uh-uh. so that's that's a nice accolade to have, isn't it? And he's one of my favourite people and another good binge read. We are both from the same, he's much younger than I am, but we're both from the same Livingston, New Jersey town, and it's it's been a, a lovely friendship. He is an absolutely wonderful dear dear man and I think I think people might enjoy his books quite a bit yeah look just before we get on to that I always do like to ask authors this question 
Is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you'd credit with the secret of your success? Well, I think maybe the continuity of being able to, as we talked about a bit before, to grow a character and to have this essentially an ensemble troupe. There are books, you know, where other people come in, but there are these core groups of faith in her family and and friends. And so, you know, there's there is a sense of I I, I guess that's very re- reassuring. P.D. James had a lovely quote about why this kind of novel was popular in times of great anxiety. And she said it's because it reassures people that we live in a beneficent universe. And I think that that's probably what I am doing when you read my books. You know, there is this reassurance. I I read noir and I like noir very much, but at the end of a noir mystery fiction, you know, the world is broken and can't be fixed. In the traditional novel like mine, it's it that's not the message that is. It's justice that will prevail and there's that reassurance and continuity. So I think that's probably it. It's lovely. Look, turning to Catherine as a reader, we have made reference to it being the joys of binge reading and we do like to both ask you a little about your own tastes and what you'd recommend for others. So obviously the golden age mystery writers like Agatha have been on your reading list, but what else have you enjoyed? Well, I want I want to plug Persephone Books, which is located in London, and it's Persephone as in the daughter of Demeter. Persephone Books started, I guess, in 1999, and they publish mid-20th century women writers who were essentially over looked um, and, or gone out of print, mostly women, They although there are some men. And the, in terms of that, it, it's one writer that they have published. They did four books a year. Go to the website, just persephonebooks.com. Is a woman named Dorothy Whipple, W-H-I-P-P-L-E, who is uh, really wrote extraordinary books and at the time that she was writing them, they were they were quite popular. It's almost like the way Mary Roberts Reinhardt was so popular in this country and then disappeared. And those are great for binge reading. But Dorothy Whipple and Persephone has also published the New Zealand writer who wrote under the name of Robin Hyde. Oh, yes. Yes. And other, you know, there it's... They publish um, American authors, British, English authors, but also Australian and then New Zealand. The Godwits fly, and you discover writers that you you know never never had heard of, and then want to know. Well, goodness, why aren't you know why aren't they on every list? But I do like to binge read. Uh, Mary Wesley is a British writer that I always find myself in times of, um, uh, of you know. Well, these times really, Mary Wesley, W-E-S-L-E-Y, is very fun for binge reading. And then I'm a great advocate of certain chiclet. I like to read a British writer named Katie Fjord, F-F-J-O-R-D. And they're just plain old, good, you know, romantic 
comedy, very funny chiclets. Uh, Indian Night is another one. In this country, I noticed that you had Anne Hillerman on, Anne Hillerman, and then her father, of course, Tony Hillerman. Those are wonderful, wonderful yeah. binge read books. Mm. Um, and a person, her name is Margaret Marin, M-A-R-O-N, and she wrote a series, a long series that set in North Carolina and set in the South with a female judge, Deborah Knott, whose father was, the first one is called The Bootlegger's Daughter and won an Edgar for that all these years ago. And Margaret is not writing anymore now, but fortunately she wrote lots and lots of them. So you can binge read Margaret Marin. Who else do I, as as you mentioned, I I do like the golden age ones. Oh, goodness. Now my mind is, mind is oh, Dorothy Cannell, C-A-N-N-E-L-L. She wrote The Thin Woman and a number with that same character. I like, you know, to follow a character. I think we all like that. Yes. We enjoy that. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, I chose the name for this podcast, The Joys of Binge Reading, because a few years ago, as we were getting started, Netflix had become, and, and services like Netflix, binge watching had become so popular, and people transferred those binge watching habit, habits through to writing, especially with digital books where you can buy the next book at, two, at 12 o'clock if you, in the in midnight if you exactly. want to. <laughs> I just did that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Look, circling back around and looking back down the tunnel of time, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, what would you change, if anything? Oh, I know, I read that and, and I've been thinking about it ever since when I read the questions. I really, I really don't think I, I would change anything. I'm very happy that I had the opportunity. I wrote four in a series in a young adult series for, well, it's called Middle Grade Readers. And then I published the book of short stories. And I, I've had a great deal of freedom. I think this is one of the things, particularly for, for women writers, I needed to have, I needed to have a paycheck, but I was fortunate to also be married to someone where he had a paycheck and we had health insurance and all of that. I think for women writers, it's very difficult to to publish if you don't have this kind of backup. So I, you know, I I really wouldn't change anything in the way it's progressed. But I'm very grateful that I had that kind of support. Yes. And then the support of of my readers, which is just I'm uh, always ex grateful for and continually astonished by. That's wonderful. But what is next for Catherine the writer? What have you got on over the next twelve months? Are you still producing the next number twenty six in the in the Faith series? No. It's been very hard. Well, it's been very hard to write during the pandemic, and I compare it to the post nine eleven. I was writing the body in the lighthouse. You know, it's not that I'm that these aren't in some ways serious books, and that book is also a 
bit of a of a invective against the kind of greedy developers who are are spoiling the well, in this case, the coast of Maine. You know, so but I found that I was really getting stuck with the writing, and I decided to just take a break because it I couldn't keep up the same tone. And the same thing has happened here with all of this going on. And also I turn out to be extraordinarily busy just kind of keeping body and soul together in terms of the house and what I call foraging and, and you know, taking care of my husband. And my son was moved in very early on and is working remotely from home. So, you know, life... My pattern of, because I wrote, I, when my son, the school bus would come and take him away and I would immediately start to work. I'd take a break, you know, to do a wash or some of the exotic thing. And then I'd stop work when the bus came back. So I was always on that same work day. But with this pandemic, it's been very difficult because it's also touching base with a lot of people and finding out how they are. And we lost a family member in April, in the early part of the pandemic, and then it was really difficult to write. So it, it, I started to go back, and what I'm working on now is a standalone, I guess you could call it, romantic suspense but it's it's a very it's it isn't a faith fair child and it takes place in the early 1970s and it's about a, a, this young woman this character and she makes a very bad choice in terms of a, the person she marries and so that I have been working on and now I'm about halfway through writing that and I'm, I'm actually quite happy with it and and I you know and, and the publisher is quite interested in it and then you know with faith it's going to have to somehow encompass what everyone has been living through so I'm going to have to think about how to do that whether to sort of fast forward Tom and Faith sitting and musing back over it or, you know, to really go more. I've been keeping a journal every day about mm. what's been going on and, and you know, just even the things that we've been eating. I thought that that might be interesting to look back yeah. on at some yes, point. Yes, because your books very much are a reflection of a real community in real time, can't, can't they? Yeah. I was thinking about that, that some authors can just ignore that COVID's happening, but the kind of um, narrative you have, you can't really ignore COVID. You have to acknowledge it's happened. No, I really can't. And, and I don't think it would be fair um, to my readers to just sort of you know, like, well, like those, you know, movies where the at the end, the person wakes up and says, oh, it was only a dream, you know, yeah. so <laughs> I, I don't, we're not, I'm not doing that, that, that wouldn't feel right. No, that's right. It is a bit of a challenge. I can understand why it might need a little bit of reflection before you get started on it. Look, we have really come to the end of our time together. Oh, so I'm so sorry. I'm just wondering, how do your readers get in touch with you? You obviously do have a good dialogue with them. In the old days, it would have been with pen and paper, but can they find you online or email now? Where can they yes. find you? 
It's very actually very easy to find me. The very easiest way to find me is just to put my full name, Catherine, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E, middle name, Hall, H-A-L-L, page, P-A-G-E. If you put that in your search engine of, or whatever you use, the very first thing that comes up will be my website, which is www.catherine-hall.com hyphen page.org so it will take you there and you can there are all sorts of things we really need to update it but it's been hard to work with the webmaster in this time but on the contact page you can write any you can write a, a novel to me there's no limit to the words that you can write to me and you can email me which I think you found because of the post codes and things. If you email me, you can email me at webmaster at catherine-hall-page.org. And that will get me every, every time. That's, that's no problem. And I really do. I, I think all authors, you know, it's, it's anyone who says that they just sit there well, I guess I, maybe I think it was Rudyard Kipling who, who never took a break and just wrote endlessly day, all day long. But most writers I know are very happy to take a break. And I love to hear from readers and get a, a legitimate chance to take a break. That's great. That's wonderful. Look, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great talking and all the very best with the new work. And I hope you had a nice holiday. You did, did you go off? Yes, I did. I had a wonderful time. We I don't know if you know the phrase in the US, glamping. It's kind of slightly... Yes, yeah. yes. Well, it was basically a glamping holiday. I've got a caravan on a piece of beautiful piece of land on the Coromandel oh. Coast, but I've got oh. running water and power there. So I've got a little gas cooker and I've got a, a little fridge. So oh. I've got enough to, for it not to be totally caveman. But it's very, very simple, and it's and it's fun to have a very simple life for a while. I, although I must admit, I'm yeah. I'm thinking of getting Wi-Fi there this coming year, so I can actually work down there more often and go down there more often. But no, it was a very nice time. The day that I came back, there was actually a terrible, terrible tragedy. Actually, a little way down the coast somebody died in a shark attack. That was the day that I came home and I'd been swimming happily all summer and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm glad I didn't think about sharks while I was swimming. But I mean, they are rare, but but it did happen just a few. No, but still that gives you pause. Yeah, it does give you pause. And it was a young woman who was killed, you know, and I mean, I lost a son myself before he was the age of 30. And it's just interesting to always have that understanding that actually... Death isn't just for the old, you know, it, it can come at any time. Yeah, it's, yes. Yeah. Although I don't want to oh. end on that note, really. <laughs> no, 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 but it's, it, it, in, it, it informs your whole life. To, it does. All, all of these pieces are, are who we are. And it makes you much more aware, I think, of just appreciating it while you have it because you never know quite yes. when it might not be there anymore. So, yeah. On that philosophical yeah. note... <laughs> Okay, all right. Lovely to talk, Catherine. Thank you so much, Jenny, and I hope to meet you in person someday. Yeah, that's right. That would be lovely. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. 
You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.